Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And today we're going to talk about an experiment in utopian living. I feel like this has been tried many times it in has. many ways. It has. And even while this one was going on, there were many, many others going on. Uh, so to give you some clues to what we're talking about, from 1841 to 1846, Boston's West Roxbury suburb, which at the time was completely rural and it is not so much now, was home to this experiment in a transcendentalist utopian living called the Brook Farm Community. And... I have read at the time that there were approximately 80 other similar experimental communities going on in the U.S. I was going to say, were they all in New England or were they all over? I think they were highly concentrated in New England, but Mm -hmm. there were a few in other parts of the country. Uh, But it is a fascinating concept to think about, like a bunch of like-minded people all kind of throwing in their lot together and trying to live in a community where... You know, they all work together to sort of attempt to achieve a blissful happiness. I see the appeal. Yeah. I think, you know, on paper, it's on paper, it is great. And then in reality, and as we'll see in practice, it's a little harder to make that work long term. Well, and sustaining yourself as a community is pretty difficult. Uh, And the founder of this experiment was a man named George Ripley. And Brook Farm was really unusual because it was the first community of its time that was secular. Uh, There were many utopian societies launching, as I said, but the rest were all pretty aligned with religious ideals. And we'll talk a little bit more about the religion element later. Um, But Ripley was a Unitarian minister. And he actually launched the community with the idea that uh, the residents could pursue their scientific and literary studies there while also working. So he wanted like a a working, thinking balance. He and his wife, Sophia Willard Dana Ripley, were heavily influenced by the Transcendentalist movement, which emphasizes a more intuitive spirituality and being highly connected to nature and living outside the trappings of societal rules. Uh, there are lots of famous writers associated with transcendentalism, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, and also Margaret Fuller and Louisa May Alcott and Nathaniel Hawthorne, who plays into this story a bit. Yes. So the Ripley's envisioned a place of balance and equality where people could live very closely with the land. And on top of that, class, gender, and age would not play any part in how valuable a person was viewed in terms of the rest of the community. Yeah, it was just, that's a big, it's a big thing that's a at big the time. shakedown for yeah. society. Uh, and so how this all got started is that George Ripley and his friend Theodore Parker attended the Christian Union Convention in 1840. And it's at that event that Ripley had the idea for Brook Farm. And this convention was organized in part by a group called, quote, Come Outers. And they were religious protesters who had left their churches to speak out against all sects. Like they didn't want the separate um, elements of religion. They didn't see why we couldn't all just come together in spirituality. Uh, and other delegates at the conference also went on to form their own utopian societies. So Ripley was not flying solo in getting this idea there. It must have been talked about because several other societies grew out of um, 
the ideas that people had while they were at that particular convention. And I mean, many of the attendees were seeing the potential of establishing communities where people could really simplify their lives and shift to a more intuitive relationship with spirituality. And so after that, Ripley resigned from his ministry uh, to pursue his dream of creating a sort of heaven on earth. That was his his full time work at that point was to figure out a way to make this idea a reality. So he wrote a letter to Ralph Waldo Emerson, in which he described his ideals for what Brook Farm would be like. And he wrote, Our objects, as you know, are to ensure a more natural union between intellectual and manual labor than now exists, to combine the thinker and the worker as far as possible in the same individual, to guarantee the highest mental freedom by providing all with labor adapted to their tastes and talents, and securing to them the fruits of their industry to do away with the necessity of menial services by opening the benefits of education and the profits of labor to all, and thus to prepare a society of liberal, intelligent, and cultivated persons whose relations with each other would permit a more simple and wholesome life than can be led amidst the pressures of our competitive institutions. Again, I see the appeal. Yeah, it's a pretty good ideal. And while Emerson also saw the appeal, he was a proponent of transcendentalism. He actually declined the invitation to join Ripley's group. He felt like the societal changes that Ripley was hoping to catalyze with Brook Farm would actually be better served by individuals instead of groups. And he wrote of it, all failed to see that the reform of reforms must be accomplished without means. I.e., he didn't really want this big organized group to try to change society. He thought you would do better one-on-one just talking with people. Yeah, and I think what what he was trying to do, you sort of see threads of this today and the whole idea that people should follow their passion and make their career based on their passion. It's sort of a similar idea of like uniting people's work with what's going to be meaningful to them, which, as we know, often does not play out Correct. in reality <laughs> as something that is possible for all people. Yeah. Uh, and Margaret Fuller, who we mentioned earlier, is another writer that's often connected to this movement, was also invited per- to participate in Brook Farm, but she declined for the same ideological reasons as Emerson. She just didn't see or didn't feel like this structured group way to do it was really the best way to affect social change. So the Brook Farm Institute for Agriculture and Education was established in 1841. And Ripley had figured out that he was going to need $30,000 for the land and the buildings and to support the community for its first year. So he financed his vision by selling shares of the farm for $500 each, which would later prove to be a very bad plan. Um, And he took contributions from like-minded philanthropists. He bought a 200-acre dairy farm in West Roxbury, adjacent to the Charles River, for $10,500 on October 11th, 1841. He didn't have any knowledge of farming, and so he started to study agriculture as he planned the farm. And most accounts will also say there's a reason it was a dairy farm, which is that it had really awful soil for actually growing crops. Yeah, so they did focus on the dairy part, but it, it may not have been the purchase that a more seasoned farmer would have made. No, and the the fact that someone who has no knowledge of agriculture is trying to start a community that's going to sustain itself by farming sort of sets the stage. Yeah, and then they really got to the point where they had the land and they had to figure out the actual logistics of how this farm was going to work. So, you know, they had the ideals of transcendentalism, but the Ripleys really, like, had to figure out how is Brook Farm going to function? 
And they had um, decided that the main farmhouse on the property, which was going to be called The Hive, would serve as the primary dorm. And it also had a lot of the social spaces. Uh, there was a community school, which eventually moved into a building called The Nest. And it was run by Sophia Ripley and her sister-in-law, Marianne. And it was designed to educate future citizens. Um, jobs would be arranged based on affinity. So people could choose their work, as he had said in his his letter to uh, Emerson, they were going to try to make people able to do the jobs that most appealed to them so they would be most fulfilling. The work week required 60 hours from the months of May to October, and then 48 from November to April. They'd also change jobs frequently to keep people from getting bored, and uh, do lots of stuff to try to make the tasks intellectually stimulating and enjoyable. There's actually a story. <laughs> Please tell me, because I'm about them attaching uh, little reading stands to, like, ironing boards so that people could be doing their sort of menial ironing tasks that had to get done and the laundry. But at the same time, they could be broadening their minds and reading things that were of interest to them. Yeah, I was sort of imagining a, a 19th century gamification of milking or something. <laughs> Mostly lots of reading. And um, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all of the labor, uh, regardless of who was doing it, got the same compensation. Uh, and for people who weren't working, the rent was $4 a week. So you could go and be at Brook Farm as a boarder and not work, but you would have to be paying for your your room and board. Uh there's a, a really unique thing about Brook Farm in that it almost entirely broke the role of women as housekeepers, which, keep in mind, 1840s. So this is really pretty revolutionary uh, in terms of how uh, the roles of women and men are defined. But Erin McEmeris, who is a scholar who was writing for the Unitarian Universalist History and Heritage Society, made an interesting note about this particular element. And he says there really wasn't a household to keep. There weren't, at least at the start of Brook Farm, many family units. So the majority of the participants were young and unmarried and without children. So in terms of keeping house, and it wasn't quite the same as if someone had moved in with like their three children and, you know, they had to make sure the kids were clothed and the, you know, toys were picked up. And it was a little bit easier when it's all young singles to kind of have everybody doing their own tidying and not have to really have a housekeeper per se. So there were 20 people to start. But that number quickly got a lot bigger. Yeah. And it, it waxed and waned a little bit as Brook Farm went on, but it, I don't think it went down to that small a number again until the end. Uh, but <laughs> the interesting thing that happened is that once the initial enthusiastic optimism of life in a new utopia wore off, it seems that the members of Brook Farm kind of separated into two categories. One was the people that were happy there and kind of found this simple life very fulfilling, and people who realized that farming is hard and they didn't really enjoy this whole toil thing. They they were like, oh, life of the mind. That sounds great. Wait, shoveling manure? Yeah. Uh, well, that 60-hour work week quoted before. Like, yeah. A lot of people today would find a 60-hour work week to be horrible a lot and it's it's not like 60 hours of sitting at a desk like we're talking 60 hours of like we were saying spreading manure and plowing and yeah uh keeping a farm going is a lot of man hours yeah uh and it is it's hard labor and most a lot of these people 
were not accustomed to hard labor. Like I said, they came into it from the intellectual mindset of like, oh, yes, we can live with the land. And in the meantime, we'll be reading all the time and studying. But they didn't get that whole like, we're going to have to cultivate the land. Yeah. We grew all of our vegetables when I was growing up. Like, I don't think we ever bought vegetables at a store. Oh. And it was really constant work for the entire spring, summer, and fall. Yeah. I mean, I I grow very small amounts of things, and I have to, I feel like, man, why does this take me an hour a day just to, like, check on plants and weed? And and that's my tiny, tiny little container garden. So, of course, on a farm, that 60 hours is actually probably a pretty reasonable number. Yeah. Yeah. but the people that fell into that second group of farming is hard did not stick around. Uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne was one of them. I think he was, he's reported to have only been there six months. Uh, but those that remained referred to that disillusioned group as quote, idealistic tourists. And they criticized their lack of uh, commitment to the project and their lack of community spirit. So as the group got bigger, they needed more buildings and uh, financing them proved to be kind of a problem. Yeah, before long, the community uh, found itself in $15,000 worth of debt, which, again, by 1840s standards, is a lot to have to make up because they were hoping this would be a long-term situation. By 1842, there were 70 people living at Brook Farm. And it was a success in that it was drawing new people to live there, but the expense of caring for the new people was beyond what they could financially handle. Especially because a lot of these newcomers didn't actually make good on the investment agreements that they had made to come there. So because many of the idealists involved in the community also found money to be distasteful, there wasn't really somebody who was just going to take control of the finances and make people pay up. Yeah, so that uh, thing that we mentioned earlier about it being like a $500 buy-in, like you would buy in your share... If nobody's actually giving you their $500, and it uh, was much more of a problem with people that came in later than the people that started out. But if nobody's actually doing their part to, you know, uh, bolster the finances, then you're really just hemorrhaging money at that point. The Nest, which was operating as a boarding school and had an excellent reputation, was really the source of most of the community's income. But even so, it didn't provide enough uh, to cover day-to-day costs, let alone the expansion plans that they were going to need to house all of the new people coming in. So from 1843 to 1844, George Ripley became more and more interested in a new vision of the utopian society, described by French philosopher Charles Fourier. So Fourier's concept of communities where social and commercial competition could just be completely eradicated really appealed to Ripley. And he thought if he could reorganize Brook Farm to be more in line with Fourierism, he could solve some of their problems by attracting new members and new financial support. So the Brook Farm concept had always been a little bit at odds with the individualism that was part of the Transcendentalist movement. And that, as you recall, is why Emerson wasn't interested in being a member. But Fourier's utopia smoothed out that particular wrinkle. And in 1844, Brook Farm officially reorganized as a, quote, Fourier, Fourier phalanx, which is a, um, 
concept that he uh, was a name he used for his concept of these communities. Uh, But the remaining members who still valued transcendentalist individualism left the community. This was actually not like a quick and easy transition. There was some infighting and arguing and and some rifts that, you know, caused people to leave. Under this new structure, the organization became a lot more rigid. Uh, Associates were organized into groups under larger series divisions. There were three series, and they were the agricultural, mechanical, and domestic industry. Each group formed in any series had to be arranged using so-called harmonic numbers. So a group had to have three, five, seven, or twelve members, but not four, six, or eight. In her history of Brook Farm, Linda Swift says this was, of course, stark lunacy. Uh, there were huge, there were rules upon rules about how the business of these series and groups was supposed to be conducted. And it was this huge departure from the really intuitive approach that the community had been founded on. Yeah, it really completely changed how the whole thing was working. Uh, because it had been, you know, so much of a, a relaxed kind of atmosphere. And now suddenly there were, you know, all of these guides about how business was going to happen and how foremen of each group would report to one another and report up to their supervisors. And it felt a lot less like the ideals that uh, Ripley had initially founded the community on. And the makeup of the group, as you can imagine, changed as well as a consequence. And so while the initial community at Brook Farm had been made up almost entirely of Boston intellectuals, now tradespeople and working class people began to fill in the gaps that were left by those that had departed during the reorganization. Uh, Ripley was very quick to point out that children from all walks of life were equally successful in the farm school and that the discourse among the adults was as robust and lively as ever, despite the diversity of backgrounds that now lived there. So he was really trying to point out, like, no, my ideas really do work. We're, we're all equal here and that's awesome. But at the same time, he had lost a lot of the people that originally bought into his plan. In 1845, Brook Farm began producing a periodical called The Harbinger. Uh, it was dedicated to Fourierism and the philosophy of utopian society. Ripley hoped that this new project was going to bring them some money. And by this point, there were more than 100 people living at Brook Farm, so it had grown pretty substantially. And Ripley wanted to construct a new building that would house all of them. At this point, they still had the hive, but they had several of their smaller houses. Uh, and he was really counting on the periodical to make some money. So work began on the great community house, uh, which was to be called the Philanstery. With the increase in Fourierism's popularity, Brook Farm and other utopian communities were starting to be viewed with more and more suspicion by the outside world. Rumors were spreading about sexual promiscuity and depravity, and while these rumors were not true of, of Brook Farm, they were seeded in Fourier's writings, in which he did advocate for sort of a free love model, similar to what we think of with the 1960s. In any case, the gossip about this behavior in West Roxbury was so devastating to the school's enrollment and consequently to Brook Farm's finances. Yeah, when your primary source of income, you know, loses most of its, um, its the checks that are coming in, you very quickly find yourself in a lot of trouble. And there was just more trouble to come at this point. 
So as times got leaner, tensions understandably grew among the Brook Farm residents. One resident started uh, hosting an outdoor Sunday service each week. And this actually caused a big rift between those who were really excited and welcomed this idea and those who had moved to Brook Farm because of its secular roots. And we should mention that religion wasn't forbidden or even unusual at Brook Farm, but organized religion had not been a part of the farm's foundation. Uh, people were certainly welcome to be spiritual and worship in whatever way they wanted, but the fact that this person was now hosting services really rankled some people. And then to make matters worse, smallpox hit the community after one of the members caught it while visiting relatives in Boston and got back before he developed symptoms. About 30% of the group had to be quarantined, and then the healthy people in the group weren't able to work on the farm because they were having to care for the sick. Several pupils were removed from the school by their families, which also reduced the little bit of income that Brook Farm had. By this point, there were four mortgages taken out on the property. So they were in really bad financial straits. And it only got worse because just after the smallpox outbreak, and to the best of my knowledge, I don't think they lost anybody during that. They just lost productivity. They had very few deaths at Brook Farm, which is kind of a... Uh, happy face in the midst of sort of this bad stuff going on. Uh, but just after that smallpox outbreak, Nathaniel Hawthorne, uh, who had left six months after it was founded, took legal action against Brook Farm to try to get his initial investment back since he didn't stay. And there had been a provision in the original um, contracts of Brook Farm that people could, if they gave enough notice, get their get their investment back if they stayed a certain a shortened period of time. So he was within his rights. Uh, and unfortunately, there were just no funds to repay him. Ripley actually agreed, yes, he's completely within his bounds to want his money back. I just don't have that money. And it didn't help that Brook Farm had also lost its primary philanthropic supporters. The people that were giving money to these utopian communities had decided they were going to give them to other communities that looked like they might have greater success. In a last-ditch effort to breathe life back into the community... Ripley and the Brook Farm leadership pushed forward on completion of the Philanstery in 1846. This was yet another case of the characteristic and misguided optimism that had given Brook Farm such promise at the beginning, but was also its undoing. It's really like any tale of the chronic failed dreamer where... You just keep thinking, just one more thing. We'll turn this around. Yeah, he he really did. I mean, everything that you look at, it's like, no, we're going to start publishing this paper. People will buy it, and then we'll be fine. No, the school is going to keep us afloat. But then, you know, just one thing after another, he kept thinking, uh, would save them, and it never did. And then to kind of kick them while they were down, they threw a party to celebrate what was going to be the completion of the new structure. It wasn't completed, but they were kind of excited that they were moving forward and close to the end. Uh, and this was on March 3rd of 1846. And during the party, a fire broke out and consumed the entire building. So the philanthropy was completely decimated as they were trying to celebrate it. Uh, and it was an unfinished structure and it had not been insured. So as it burned, so did the dream of Brook Farm, because $7,000 had been spent building the structure, which had turned to ashes. And it was thought that they were going to need another 3000 just to finish it. But of course, that money never got spent because it wasn't there to finish. So they were basically out on their investment of the building. Completely. Completely. Uh, so 
not having to spend that three thousand more dollars was not not a really lot going to help them. No, so that was really the final nail in the community's financial coffin, and it took its toll on the already lagging morale of the the people that had stuck it out and were trying to keep things going. So within just a few months, there were only a few dozen people left at Brook Farm, uh, and George Ripley even though he was still living there on the property, had kind of already turned his focus to the New England Fournier Society. He really stopped worrying about keeping it going because he kind of knew what was going to happen. Toward the end of 1846, the Brook Farm Library collection was sold at auction. And then in 1847, uh, the bankruptcy filing for Brook Farm wrapped up. And in August of 1847, it was officially disbanded. So Ripley's transcendentalist utopia only lasted for six years. And while Brook Farm wasn't sustainable long term, it really did have a pretty significant influence on many social movements going on at the time, including abolitionism and the women's rights movement. According to Linda Swift, who we uh, referenced earlier, 14 marriages could track their roots back to the fellowship at Brook Farm, uh, one of which actually took place there. And most of those appear to have been happy. Another interesting point is that the community had what could be considered a prototype of the modern daycare, uh, where the few parents among the group could leave their children with caregivers for the day while they set to their work, which had really never been done before, at least on an organized level. Nathaniel Hawthorne, who probably never got back his initial investment, wrote a fictionalized version of his time at Brook Farm called Blythedale Romance. It's clear from it that he did not enjoy this experiment. Oh. Uh, as for Ripley, he went on to become the literary critic for the New York Tribune, and he held that job until he died in 1880. After Brook Farm was abandoned, the former dairy farm found other uses. It was used as a poorhouse, as a Civil War training camp, and as an orphanage. In 1977, Brook Farm was designated a Boston landmark. That same year, the hive, which was still standing, burned down. In 1984, arson took the house on the property that had been named after Margaret Fuller, even though she had never lived there. In 1988, the Massachusetts Department of Conservation and Recreation acquired the Brook Farm site. It lists the lands as a national historic landscape, and the buildings are all gone. In her 1900 book entitled Brook Farm, Its Members, Scholars, and Visitors, Linda Swift, who we referenced earlier, says of the Brook Farm community, like some ill-contrived play, the Brook Farm phalanx lingered during one more act after all the essential dramatic elements were exhausted. So even though it kind of sputtered out at the end and it had a lot of problems, uh, it's still kind of referred to when people talk about it as sort of a success in terms of it being a successful experiment. Like, I think a lot was learned from it. And from a sociological standpoint, I know people study it and kind of turn over and examine what was right about it and what was wrong. And it did have some some pretty uh, interesting influences on society at the time. So in that regard, you could count it as success. Uh, there were societal reforms linked to some seeds sowed there. And it's so fascinating. Yeah. And it was pretty revolutionary that everyone, regardless of their sex or their age or their race, was going to be treated the same way. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's, that's not really how 1840 was no. working. And there are many, many stories. I mean, we could you could almost launch a podcast just about Brook Farm and talk about individual stories uh, of people and events that happened there. Because there are 
many, many of them. And most of the people that had lived there really spoke pretty well of it, even though there had been problems. So it's a, a fascinating concept to think about. I, th- I, I have to wonder if someone tried a similar thing today, if it would work. Well, and I, I know a couple of people that have lived essentially on communes at some point in their life. None of them for their entire life. Like it always seems to have been this three to five year stint we tried at a commune. It out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> my first, my early memories are on the commune, and then my parents left. Yeah, yeah. There are many cases of failed communes, but I think a lot of times they implode in a much more dramatic way. This one kind yeah. of, like I said, kind it fizzled out. out. Yeah. The, it was mostly about money, I think, even though there were some ideological shifts throughout its life. Really, the money was what killed it. Yeah. Well, and even if you think you're prepared for the work, the manual work, like if you are, if you are an intellectual person who most of your life has been relatively privileged, then the the sheer amount of manual labor required just to raise your own food, the shock, kind of crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It puts a lot of things in perspective. Yes, indeed. So that's Brook Farm. And I think you also have some listener mail. I do. Uh, I have a few. Two are, well, they're all about our recent episode on the domestication of the cat. Uh, one is from our listener, Rosie, who says she was surprised that neither of us had a favorite famous cat in history, both of you being cat lovers and history buffs. She says, it might only be Aussie knowledge, but Matthew Flinders, the first man to circumnavigate Australia, has a cat called Trim, who was born on board and sailed with him. Trim is pretty well known in Australia, at least in his history and cat circles, and is probably my favorite historical cat. I had never heard of him, so that's super cool. Nor me. Uh, and Kate also wrote us and kind of said the same thing. She said, Towards the end of the show, you mentioned that you did not know of any famous cats, so I thought I'd share some with you. In the United Kingdom, the Prime Minister has an official chief mouser of the cabinet who lives at Downing Street. This role was currently held by Larry and Freya. The first of these cats was during the reign of Henry VIII, and since 1929, there has been a line in the budget for petty cash for the upkeep and maintenance of the mousers. I love that. Another famous cat, which links nicely to a previous Stuff You Missed in History podcast, is Unsinkable Sam. Unsinkable Sam, or Oscar, was a German ship's cat originally on the Bismarck who was found among the wreckage of the ship by British Navy vessels. He was rescued and then served on two British naval ships, surviving the sinking of both of them as well. That is almost freaky. Uh, In 1941, after the sinking of his last ship, he lived in the governor's house in Gibraltar before being returned to the UK to live out the rest of his life in a home for retired seamen in Belfast. That is charming. Uh, Though research suggests that the story of Sam may be an urban legend, he still is one famous feline, and some cat ended up in the seaman's home. (laughs) So uh, those are famous cats we did not know about. No. Which is really cool. All I could think of was um, President Clinton's cat, Socks, and he's not really famous except for being that. Like, I have never heard many stories about him. So thank you, both of you, for writing in about uh, if anybody else would like to write to us, they can do so at historypodcast at discovery.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter at Missed in History and on Facebook at facebook.com slash history class stuff. We're also on Tumblr at mistinhistory.tumblr.com and you can find us on Pinterest. If you would like to learn a little bit more about what we talked about today, you can go to our website and type in the words Brook Farm, which is two words, in our search bar, and it will turn up an article for you called How Socialism Works, and Brook Farm is mentioned in that article. And if you would like to learn about almost anything else you can think of, you can do so at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. 
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Netflix streams TV shows and movies directly to your home, saving you time, money, and hassle. As a Netflix member, you can instantly watch TV episodes and movies streaming directly to your PC, Mac, or right to your TV with your Xbox 360, PS3, or Nintendo Wii console, plus Apple devices, Kindle, and Nook. Get a free 30-day trial membership. Go to www.netflix.com and sign up now.